Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right, we're back this week. I have another new guest here with me today, Dr. Lucretia Berry. I heard of Dr. Berry through a few other podcast platforms, actually, where she was guest speaking. And then I watched her TED Talk, and I immediately was blown away. And I absolutely love her approach to these topics. So one thing led to the other. I found Brownicity, reached out to her, and I just want to say I'm absolutely honored that she is taking the time out of her busy life to be here with us today. I'm so excited for what she has to bring. So hi, Lucretia. How are you? Hi, Whitley. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for finding me. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you for being here. So do you want to start us off with a little introduction? Who are you and what is your story? Sure. Well, let's see. I'll try to keep it brief because it's a lot, but no. So I actually am Dr. Lucretia Berry. I have a doctorate in curriculum and instruction or in education, and that is relevant to the story. Otherwise, I wouldn't just throw my PhD at people. (laughs) (laughs) to do with this story and the work that I do. I am originally from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So I was born and raised in the South. And growing up, even though I am the first generation, and I'm not that old, (laughs) but I'm the first generation (laughs) to attend schools, you know, fully segregated, racially segregated from kindergarten to 12th grade. So my parents grew up during Jim Crow. So they did not experience full school integration and go to school with white kids. So I'm the first generation. So as such, I think socially, my life was still pretty segregated. Like I was mm-hmm. with white kids in school, but not not beyond that really, because church and church life and home life and family life still pretty separate from dominant culture. So my parents passed on a particular racial toolkit for me to be able to navigate our racialized society. So imagine African-Americans post Jim Crow, and then of course, needing to equip their children, their Black children, African-American children to navigate the society that they grew up in. Right. So then there's that. And eventually I married a white man from Iowa. Now that was not anything I could have predicted because of how <laughs> I've grown up at all. Like totally not in any stars that I was looking at, right? <laughs> that right. I was gazing upon. But anyway, just a series of events in life. Again, I grew up very racially segregated for the most part, except for school. I attended a historically black college, South Carolina State University for my undergrad. And then in a twist of irony, I end up at Iowa State University. So in the state of Iowa for graduate school and Iowa as a state is predominantly white, like I think 96%. Doing this work, the work of integrating a historically black ministry or church was actually how I met my husband. We became great friends doing this work. 
and we didn't, you know, we didn't date. We were just, we were great friends doing this work of, <laughs> there's a lot of work when it comes to taking down or challenging or disrupting old structures and systems, especially those that are ingrained along the lines of faith. And so here we were at my early twenties. He was at this time, but he's younger than I am. So he was an undergrad and I was in graduate school. <laughs> um, but so here we are this group of college kids doing this work. And it takes a lot of inner work of self before you can see a manifestation in the community. And in this case, in this particular church, my dad always taught me, we do what we want to do. And so for those of us who bought in (laughs) to this idea, we made it happen. You know, as you can imagine, there were lots of people who did not want to do this work. And so subsequently they left (laughs) and did not participate, but such is the world. We developed a deep friendship and eventually started dating after college and got married. So imagine him growing up in Iowa in small town, Iowa, and he had yet, of course, a different racial toolkit than I had for navigating the world. Well, once we got married, we then had conversations about how we would have to equip our multi-ethnic children to be able to navigate our hyper-racialized society. And of course, this would have to be intentional because it's going to be different than what my parents gave me. And it's going to be different than what his parents gave them. And so actually it was, or it is our concern for our children, equipping our children, supporting our children is what launched us, me more specifically as a mom and an educator into this work. And I was a full-time professor for a short time, a couple of years, but marriage and having kids, I moved to more part-time and then eventually began to do work in the schools wherever my children attended. And Mm -hmm. then that kind of provided like this place, I call it like a garden for me to plant and grow or plant things and watch things grow. That's kind of my story. (laughs) I love it. So let's talk about Brownicity. Tell me the reason you created this, the goals, and then also what your slogan, many hues, one humanity mean. Right. And so, okay, Brownicity, again, comes from, is birthed from a conversation with our children. And like I said, we've always been intentional about equipping them and giving them the tools they need to navigate our society, but especially around race, because our society as a whole kind of lives in a deficit yeah. and it doesn't have tools or language or framework or even context and history. And that's why there are still so many problems. But added to that, family like ours would need space for a more nuanced and complex conversation because we don't fit into prescribed or predetermined racial categories. My husband and I kind of talked about a framework for how we would help our children understand how they've been situated in the world, first and foremost as humans, and then also as as humans who have access to a divine being. And so therefore you have the divine essence in you as well. And so we wanted them to know who they are essentially. And then beyond that, like when you walk out of the door, out of our door, where our family is this one unit, you have a mom and a dad, like every other human. But when you walk out of the door, because our society is so racialized, yes, people will then want to put the label or consider them mixed, but it's like mixed with what? A human and a human, you know, (laughs) but really, you know, want to make their identity about being racially mixed. And so we didn't want that to catch them off guard because it doesn't make sense. It just when you're in your house or when you're in your family. So we knew that we needed a framework of unity (laughs) to talk from the perspective or from the the paradigm that we are, yeah, we're just simply one human family. Here in America, they're going to be considered Black. Of course, they have complex identities ethnically and culturally, right? So, you know, my husband, his background is 
Like he's mostly Italian, but there's also some German there and I think Scottish. And we want them to be able to connect to that as well. And we want them to know a more nuanced understanding of what it means, what African-American is and how I am and they are the descendants of Africans who were enslaved and brought here. So again, we, we needed space to have more nuanced conversations. And so one day when our oldest was four years old, she had been doing an activity and painting her portrait in preschool. And she says, you know, Oh, today we painted our portrait and I learned or I realized that we are all hues of brown. And she said, mommy is deep brown and daddy is light brown and I am medium brown. <laughs> thought, That's right. And again, because my husband and I, we're not new to this work. We could further the conversation. So we explained to her about melanin. I said, yes, daddy is light brown because his ancestors lived in a place that was further away from the sun and they needed less melanin in order to absorb the sun's rays. And mommy is deep brown because her ancestors came from a place that was closer to the equator. And so they needed more melanin in order to protect from the sun's rays. And I said, so yes, mommy has more melanin, daddy has less melanin, and you have medium. (laughs) amount of melanin. That's something that children can understand. And so our children have always been articulate when it comes to talking about skin tone or even describing what someone looks like. And so instead of just saying, well, someone is Indian or someone is Asian or someone is black or white, they would say, well, I don't know, Sue is, they'd say brown like me, but has straight hair like daddy and looks like her ancestors may be Asian. So very specific. Or my friend is brown like you, mommy. And again, it gave us space for, like I said, a more nuanced and a broader conversation. And so that's where the brown comes from, because we would literally say brown like me or brown like daddy or brown like mommy. And funny thing is, as our friends picked up on it. So we have this little friend circle. And that's how, whether you were an adult or a child, that's, that's how we would <laughs> talk. And I was like, I bet people think like, what are they saying? <laughs> but that's where the word brown comes from. And this made up word, brownicity, it just represents melanin that we all have. And then icity is from the word ethnicity. And ethnicity mm-hmm. means that which we have in common. And so we are many hues, but one humanity. And so the word and the tagline are supposed to give that space. That's what our work is about, is equipping people with this framework and this language and this permission to talk about skin tone and race and racism and anti-racism in very healthy and helpful and hopeful ways. So yeah, that's that. (laughs) Wow. I love that. I love Mm -hmm. the background behind that. Thank you. So what does Brownicity do? Right. So, well, we are an agency that is dedicated to education, advocacy, and support for racial healing and anti-racism. And essentially that has come from what we, or initially I, what I saw as a need to fill a deficit. Our institutions of education, for example, schools in general, and let's just say churches as well, they provide education. They just have not equipped us to, again, have the more sophisticated dialogue that we need to have in order to move our society forward. Instead, we've inherited the colorblind approach, which, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it sounds good in theory, but in reality, it's quite harmful because it has 
robbed us, again, it's robbed us of language and framework and permission to address racial injustice and then even begin to come up with solutions. Like like we shut it down. We shut down even the, the creative process by saying, well, I don't see that there's a problem. You know? right, <laughs> so, right. At first, our work was, again, educating our friends who had who are beautiful people, but then I was floored by what they didn't know. And it wasn't because I was judging them. It's because they were saying, asking me questions like, well, how come I've never had a negative experience with a Black person? And this would be a white person asking this question. How come I've never had a negative experience? However, when a Black person is walking down the street and I'm sitting in my car, I lock the door. I'm like, oh, okay. Or those kinds of questions like, well, my mom is a great Christian woman, but she says horrible things about, you know, Black mm-hmm. people and race. And I know she's wrong, but I don't know the words. It's that same thing. I don't know the framework. I don't fully understand how to explain to her in a respectful way that she's wrong or to help her understand. And so I saw, oh, people need tools. Like they need overall understanding. They need to be savvy. And so even in in my children's schools, I saw that teachers needed some things. They needed some tools. And so that's kind of where it all began is feeling a void and a deficit. And so hopefully one day institutions of education, whether that be schools or churches or even your place of work, we will have structures in place that where if people have not been educated or if they've been deprived of history and context around race and racism, that they can get what they need. But in the meantime, (laughs) Brownicity exists to help with that. And so we get to work with teachers and parents a lot, even the people who are on our team, because over the years it has gone from being me to there's a team of us and we all have similar passion and heart. Mm-hmm. And that is to fill that deficit, fill that void. People don't know what they don't know. So right. we can help you with that. And we teach a lot of courses, workshops. Currently right now we have cultivated an online learning community, which was awesome. We put that in place before <laughs> quarantine life. <laughs> In the fall, we launched that just because I would get asked if I could come to different places throughout the country or world. And I'd love to help teach, but I have smaller kids. And so I want to be here in their lives. But if I can do some things, if I can provide, you know, make myself and make my team accessible virtually and digitally, then I'm happy to do that. Wow. That's what we do. (laughs) So it sounds like it's a lot of education and awareness and really equipping people with the vocabulary and tools to be able to talk about these things. Yeah. And it gives people their why, because here's something that is common in our culture. I'll just use the story of this teacher who she was a retired teacher and she took our course and she said, I've taught for 23 years. I was a part of, received all this training on diversity and inclusion. They told us what to do, like how to behave or perform. I'm ad living. She didn't say these words, but how to behave or perform diversity and inclusion. She said, but I never knew the why. And she said, so in your course, in six weeks, I have learned more than I have learned in my 23 years of teaching. 
Wow. And so, yes, it is it's language and it's equipping, but I think ultimately it's empowering people. People then walk away with their own why. And so they're not always asking, I mean, they still can't ask, okay, so help me, you know, manifest this into a practice. Sure. But it's their practice is then being sustained by their own personal drive and mm-hmm. you know, maybe their own personal conviction and passion versus trading the status quo check box for a now anti-racism checkbox. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is such crucial work. (laughs) So what does it mean to be anti-racist to you? I define that as anti-racism as the policy or practice of opposing racism. And so one has to really understand the racist or the status quo of racism in our nation. It's our foundation. I don't know if your listeners will know enough to be able to contextualize my comment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking purely from historical perspective and in our courses, we teach and we show like you don't have to wonder because writing racist policies into practice was so normal. It was justified because people thought that that was the way the world should go. And yeah, it's all written down and documented. It's just that people don't show you that in school. And so one of the comments we get when people are taking our courses, they can't believe that it's just written. It's all written down. <laughs> Documents and deeds and, you know, right. and policies. Like it's right there. It says, you know, no Negroes. I mean, so people are like, oh my gosh. So anyway, so of course, then our human behavior is has been shaped by all of these policies and, and practices that have been in play. And so then to be actively anti-racist is to then disrupt that. So be a part of disrupting the status quo, dominant narratives, practices, and beliefs. And so that's going to look different across the board. And for a parent, that looks like I'm going to make sure that my children, as best I can, don't center a racialized identity or narrative in their lives. Like I want them to know to know the bigness of themselves. And I also want them to understand that like white is not the default or the Mm -hmm. starting point or the foundation. So in our home, we have books where characters of color are central characters. We have books by authors from all around the world. And so it's exposure. It's centering what typically the status quo marginalizes. It's challenging narrative. So even if I see my girls, so for example, one of my daughters was really wanting to straighten her hair because my girls have curly hair. She's right. really wanting to straighten her hair and it was really important to her. We engage in, the, in this conversation about, well, why is this important? Well, because she watches shows, which I'm not choosing all of the shows, but she watches <laughs> shows. All of the char- characters are white or fair-skinned and have straight hair. So then here's how I dis- I'm disruptive. So I have this conversation with her and I tell her about how the brain works. And if you constantly see the same images over and over again, then that shapes what your brain interprets as the norm or the standard. So how about you either watch some shows or look at pictures or be exposed to media where people maybe have brown skin and curly hair. And let's find some more people representation where curly hair is appreciated. And it's not it doesn't exist just to be straightened. Mm-hmm. And then we even one summer enrolled her into a hair camp for curly hair. <laughs> curly and coily hair like mine. And so I watched her conversation change from can I straighten my hair? So there's all these other options like, oh, well, I can put a braid in here or there or I can do color. So it just broadened her perspective. As a parent, it's a constant day-to-day disruption. As, as a teacher, it's about who gets to be 
a part of the, your curriculum and who gets left out mm-hmm. of the curriculum as a business owner. It's going to be who are you like mentoring and making sure that they have as much opportunity, especially people who have their neighborhoods have been divested. And so they maybe didn't have access to all of the things that someone coming from a neighborhood where that has been invested in, right, by corporations and the, the mm-hmm. government. So how are you as an individual then taking on the mantle of being or fostering change in your sphere of influence? Like I said, and it's kind of like different for different people, but I think everybody can be actively anti-racist wherever they are. So church or home or school, corporate, medical, housing, all of the things, all of the places. (laughs) I love that. And I love that story with your daughter. And it really sounds like instead of shaming her for wanting these things, empowering her to understand like why and where that's coming from. Yes. Thank you for saying shame because shame cannot be a part of this. Mm -hmm. Shame shuts down the brain. Even when people say, when they're going through a course and they say, I feel a ashamed. And I'm like, okay, so you're allowed to feel your feelings, but please don't be overcome by that. And I'm never going to project shame onto anyone. Someone has said to me, you're making me feel guilty. You know, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I think you brought that into the class, which I I totally understand. I know how the brain works. I'm not a psychotherapist, but I do know a tiny bit, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. about what goes on when people are kind of meeting up with hard information and new information. I get the dissonance that happens and the dissonance that's there. Shame is not a part of the learning process. Not a healthy one. (laughs) No, it's not. We're seeing, I think, a lot right now, people getting defensive, saying like, I'm not racist. I'm Mm. not. What is the difference between just saying I'm not racist versus being actively (laughs) anti-racist? Well, I chuckle because typically it's white people saying that. Right. (laughs) And then I want to say, well, I'm not racist either, but we still have a lot of work to do, like to do. And I get it because see, again, we have been taught that to put the focus on like maybe one individual or we've made racist something equivalent to morality. Right. Morality, like bad, this bad, good binary. And again, we need to expand and be able to have a more nuanced and complex conversation. And the truth is that, yes, we have lived in and have been impacted by a racist system. And our system is like air, air we breathe, water we drink. And so it's impacted us, it's in us. My husband, who is white, he says, been married to Lucretia, a black woman for 18 years. And I have three brown daughters, but he knows that he has to check the conditioning. Still, you know, it's not a thing that goes away because we live in a racialized world. And so you can make major strides in your journey. You'd still always be checking in when things come up that challenge and test new parts, parts you haven't already like addressed. And so I liken it to, I heard this somewhere and I thought, oh, that's great analogy. Mad moms against drunk drivers. Whitley, I don't know how old you are, but I remember... Because you look young. (laughs) I remember others against drunk drivers. People were being killed by drunk drivers and children were being killed by drunk drivers, right? And so the mothers and lawmakers, policymakers got together, created policy, you know, and laws and all of the things that then have impacted the whole 
drunk driving thing. And so as a result, we have far fewer deaths at the hands of drunk drivers than we had, I don't know what, 20 years ago or when I was growing up, maybe 30 years ago. I could look at, you know, or we, anybody, we could look at the rate of killings or deaths that were happening at the hands of drunk drivers and say, well, I don't drink, you know, and shrug it off. But no, we we know, well, there's some things that need to be done. So it really isn't about whether I drink or not, or whether I drink and drive or not, or there is a public crisis. Mm -hmm. And so we can all be active in addressing or putting policies in place to shift our thinking and our awareness and our outcomes, just like we have done with drunk drivers. I love that analogy. I think that's great. I I wish I remember where I heard it so I could credit them. I can't remember. I really like how you mentioned also the moralization of racism and the binary, because Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of the shame and guilt comes in, Mm -hmm. where people don't want to be labeled that because then they think that automatically means they're a bad person. (laughs) Right. So I think taking that out of the equation and acknowledging that this is the air we're breathing, this is the system we've been born into, that it is racialized, it is systematic racism, and we may be benefiting from these systems, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that, look, this is just how it is, and we all have a part in doing something about it. Like you said, whether you you were a drunk driver or whether Mm -hmm. you drink or not, like, we all have a part. Yeah. We can all make change happen. Mm -hmm. And then we don't have to be complicit in the society we inherited. Again, I was reading some of the responses of some of our learners. And one did say, I feel shame to be white. (laughs) And I was like, no, don't do that. (laughs) Don't feel ashamed about the society that we've inherited. I mean, acknowledge that there are lots of opportunities (laughs) for Mm -hmm. us to make it better. Lots of opportunities for us to fix it and then run with urgency in the direction of transformation. With urgency. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think the shame and the binary of good and bad makes people shut down and then not do anything about it because they just feel so helpless. And so I think it's empowering to acknowledge that, yes, we were born into these things and we all have a part in it. And then, Mm -hmm. like you said, urgently running towards doing something about it. Yes. What you don't want is to say, well, okay, don't feel shame. And then people go, okay, I'm just going to lay down now. Right. No, 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 no. It's still urgent. It's still urgent. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. (laughs) You mentioned the white woman before saying, I've never had a bad experience with a black person, but when someone walks up and I lock my car, what does it mean to have implicit bias? And why (laughs) is it important to be conscious of these biases we hold? And I want to explain implicit bias a little bit because I think it has, again, in this context of conversations on race or educating on race, it now it has like a negative stigma mm-hmm. to it when really it's just a function of the brain. So everyone has implicit bias, like our brains were designed that way and our brains kind of function. Now, this is going to be super superficial. So brain scientists, people don't be mad at me. For making it sad, but I don't have time to really go into all of the functions of the brain, nor can I do that. But it can explain how the brain has a conscious brain and an unconscious brain. So kind of two parts. And so the conscious brain deals with data and facts and it processes slowly. Like your name is Whitley 
and it's pronounced Whitley. (laughs) (laughs) The unconscious brain mostly deals with habits and intuition. So it works really fast and it recognizes patterns, right? And categories, patterns and categories. So, and that's on purpose because we receive so much information per second, per day. We would be exhausted. We really would just have to take a nap for a whole day. If our brain, (laughs) if the conscious brain had to process all of the information that the unconscious brain does. And again, it's a part of how we're designed. So you're not having to learn the same information over and over again. So I will look at a a dog and go, oh, I can have a thought. Is that a safe dog? Is that a, a dangerous dog? Right. And I can do that in my conscious brain. But if I look at a wolf, yeah, I'm not gonna stand there and like slowly process that, right? Like my unconscious brain is like danger, danger, get out, get out. So so we need that. Like we need kind of this shortcut that the unconscious brain does. It mostly works by making these assumptions like about wolf, dangerous, run, it's going to eat you. It already ate your grandmother, that kind of thing. (laughs) So they're informed by the unconscious brain is mostly informed by like culture and background. And so in this case, race, the unconscious brain has picked up on these patterns that have been made by policies and practices Mm-hmm. and beliefs, right? So they've created cycles and patterns. So of course, the unconscious brain then has kind of created a shortcut to that. So yes, even though you have never had a negative interaction with an African-American male, and I'm talking to my white friend, but because of television, you know, media, stories, narrative, maybe the exclusion of you don't have black male friends, you you only read about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in school or something. So you've mm-hmm. not had any proximity and relationship and caring for African-American males. So then, yeah, your brain relies on that shortcut or that's implicit versus explicit bias or an unconscious bias. So again, it's not negative in and of itself, but we all have implicit biases because we've been, again, breathing in (laughs) the toxic air and drinking the toxic water of our racialized society and our hierarchical, so racial hierarchical society, then yeah, our brain subconsciously or unconsciously is saying, yeah, white people at the top and then black people at the bottom and then all of the other ethnicities, racial categories are in between. And that begins to happen. Children can articulate that as early as, wait, I don't want to get the age wrong. I want to say five or seven. Oh, seven. Children can accurately reflect social status bias and will make choices or judgments based on who they perceive as having more power and privilege. So by the time they go to school, their brain has already kind of observed and put these patterns in place and they've already been trying to make sense of it. So anyway, that's what implicit or unconscious bias is. Like I said, we all have it and that's why we have it. If your next question is, what do we do about it? (laughs) You know, the first thing, of course, is to be aware. And so because people don't know, they don't know that. But let's say I'll use myself as an example. I used to be an English teacher as well. Mm -hmm. And I would have a lot of students. I would teach freshman English. And I noticed my bias for certain students. So if I like the student in class, I'm going to grade their paper better. You know, they're going to get a higher grade, right? I mean, I have to be honest. So what I did was, so first I have to be aware of my bias and know it's there. And then I address it. Let me be honest that I am doing this. And then I have to put things in place or build an inclusive habit. What I did was I told all my students, all your papers must look exactly 
basically alike. So I put the standard there. Everybody's font the same, margins, everything looks the same. And then I just had some kind of number system. I can't really remember specifically, but then I would read the papers and not know who had written the paper. And then Mm -hmm. I could grade more fairly. And then of course, when I noticed, hey, now I'm starting to, after a while, I can start to pick up on how people write. And so Mm -hmm. then again, I have to put something else in place. The most important thing is to be aware and to know that you have this happening. I love that. I love that you reestablish new habits, create these new mm-hmm. habits. And then when you notice the bias <laughs> creeping in again, you recheck yourself and do things differently. I think that's super important that it's not just a one-time thing. You have to constantly be checking yourself. Mm-hmm. What are some of your tools to speak to children or teens about these things? You know, skin tone, race, racism. Yeah. Um, like you said, at seven years old, they're starting to internalize these things. So really, why is it important to not be waiting to speak to our youth about these topics? Again, parents and teachers, adults, we have to remember, just because it's scary to us, (laughs) doesn't mean it's scary to them. Honestly, I think that is our reservation. And I know we said we want it to be developmentally appropriate. And this topic isn't developmentally appropriate. And to me, it's like depriving them of truths and lying to them about the world that they are living in or the world that they're going to inherit. Like they need to know the truth. And I will say, I get to teach a high school elective Mm -hmm. on anti-racism. And so I have ninth through 12th graders who, when they learn the parts of history that I teach, because I don't teach any history that they already know. So I'm like, here are all these dots. Let me give you these other dots so you can create a fuller picture. They learn these things. They learn about patterns and policies and practices. And they are livid that they are just now learning that in high school. Isn't that something? You see, so they can handle it. And when kids are small, fairness is so very important. And when you pretend or when we pretend that, well, the world is fair, everybody is equal, we deprive them of an opportunity to grow their empathy, their compassion, and their passion. We don't want to do that. They can handle these very nuanced conversations. Well, I had an adult ask me, she said, how come (laughs) when certain things happen, let's just say how a lot of racial unjust and unrest and racial injustice is now making the headlines in the news, even though it's not new <laughs> right for a very long time I had a white woman ask me how come it white people and she meant like herself how come we don't know what to do and I said well you got to remember unless you were like me like okay so let's just say we all went to the same school and we all learned the same thing and so at school you learn over and over again that this whole theme of Europeans or white people can take the land of Native Americans and leave them in history. There's no like, where are they now type of lesson right. that you ever get. Or maybe you're taught they sacrificed themselves for <laughs> America or something. You already kind of get this narrative that implies that brown bodies are disposable for the benefit of white bodies. Mm-hmm. Then we learn the same. Okay, so then we brought some people over from Africa and they worked for free and built the whole, made the country wealthy and still have never benefited or had any rights to any of that. And that's okay because slavery was good, something like whatever it is learned or didn't learn. So you fundamentally at a young age been taught that that's okay, that brown and black bodies are disposable for the sake and the betterment and advancement of white people or Europeans. So now you're an adult, right? Right. And you've been deprived of these opportunities to grow in your empathy, compassion, fairness, and justice, that lens. And when stuff happens, you're like, well, how come I don't know what to do? Like, how come I don't feel this? Well, 
because you were deprived of that when you were in grade school. And I don't want that for my children. And I know people are afraid that it's a scary topic, but guess what? When we share things with our children, like I remember when we shared with our five-year-old, our first, the oldest, before she was about to go to school. Now we were not going to leave it up to the school to do this. So we started to teach her about civil rights and race and that kind of thing as a construct or as a policy in that right. Like we've always been talking about skin tones and they knew really early in general how lighter skin in our society is perceived as better, even though it's right. you know, not so that, but then even more specifically talk about system of enslaving people and the narratives all around that. And that just started with books and reading books about children who were enslaved, like the American Girl doll, Addie. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I remember my child was so upset that this was a way of life for someone. She said, now you mean to tell me, now this is a little girl, you mean to tell me that if it were not for Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, and I remember she was so cute back then because she thought Jim Crow was a person. She was like, I I don't like that Jim Jim Crow. She said, if it were not for Dr. Martin Luther King and his work, I would not have been able to be born. And I'm like, you're right. She was so upset. And I remember just watching her have a tantrum. But that's right. That's the kind of thing you should be upset about. Right. Not you didn't get the crayon you wanted. (laughs) (laughs) There's degrees here. You can have a tantrum about that. You can cry about that. That's totally valid. That's valid. It's important that you have that space to do that. And I know sometimes people, like I had a friend whose white son, she was in my class. And so some of the stuff she was learning, somehow he read it, some of it quickly, and he just started crying. And she was so hurt that he saw it. And I I said, it's okay. Better for him to see that now than to be shocked later when he's older. And then he'll be furious that he didn't know. He will feel like he's been lied to, which is what I hear all the time by my high school students and by adults. And then they're embarrassed and ashamed. Mm -hmm. I say all of that to say the younger you start, the better. And it doesn't always have to be devastation and destruction. So like with our family, with the skin tone thing, we've just normalized that in a very positive way and celebrating our different skin tones and naming our skin tones. And then that that's the foundation when you begin to talk about how we've been sorted into these racial categories and the politics behind that and the motivation behind that and how it still persists today. All right, we're seeing these phrases being <laughs> used. They're coming up during these conversations and they're really used to bypass these right. conversations of race, mm-hmm. racism, privilege, phrases like, we're all the same. I don't mm-hmm. see color. We need love and light. This is just <laughs> causing hate and division. Yeah. And these phrases alone may not be toxic or harmful, or that's not mm-hmm. the intention. But in response to racism and accountability in anti-racism work, they are being weaponized. Right. So can we unpack that a little bit? Pretty simple. Because again, we have not been equipped. So it's like saying, let's go create a better world. And nobody has a crayon or a drawing pad or, you know, they don't have anything to do that. And so what you do is you go, oh, the world we have is fine. So we're asking things of people who have not been equipped and given permission to move in this capacity in this way. So that's what they know. They know colorblindness. They know we are all one and the same. We're all equal. That's the bypassing term. Mm-hmm. That's the cover up for, I don't know how, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know why this is happening. 
So then you just shame the person or the movement (laughs) that's trying to cultivate, create, imagine a better world. And so we fear what we don't know. And again, because we have that deficit, like, oh, fear is happy to step in and then bypass and say, we're all equal. You can say that to your child. You can say, we're all the same or we're all equal. They watch television, you know, they Mm -hmm. go out in society. And especially if you live in a white bubble, they're going to see that, okay, the only time they encounter brown people, either when one comes to clean the house or one comes to work in the yard or or they go to a neighborhood that looks different than theirs and the neighborhood is full of brown people. So they're going to see that that's not the case. But again, if you aren't given the context and no one is telling you the truth, then yeah, that's all you have is, well, we're all one and the same. Or I like what you said, we need love and light, not hate and division. And I have not encountered, now there could be, but I have not encountered anyone who understands how race and racism work. So you've been educated or, you know, you've taken a course or whatever. I don't know anybody who like moves forward in hate and division because hate and division is actually a manifestation of fear. So the only people who move forward in hate and division are the people who are just sitting and writhing in fear. Everybody else, again, I can't think of one person who understands, believes that anti-racism work is about hate and division. Yeah, I've been called divisive before. And it's just so ironic because I'm like, you're coming into my space because I have not invited myself into your space. Right. I've barged into my space to call me divisive. Who's making the mess? Mm-hmm. Who's bringing the fear? Well, and really, the compassionate thing to do is to acknowledge these things. It is kind <laughs> to acknowledge other people's hurt and pain and their oppression. It is kind to stand up for these people. It is kind to want to disrupt these systems that hurt these people. So really, <laughs> the well, light and love is in this work. Exactly. It is. I love you use the word weaponized. People are being manipulated to think that there is something that they have to give up that will actually put them at a disadvantage. The irony is people say that from a very privileged place. Yes. Right? Because you wouldn't be afraid to lose an advantage <laughs> if you didn't understand that you already had it, right? So exactly. while you're saying, oh, we're all one and the same, you know that you have advantages that you are afraid you're going to have to give up in order for other people to be treated or be given the same advantages. It doesn't work like that. Like you said, love and light is in this work. It's a healing work. Like we've all been deprived, jacked up and messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> race and racism. I think that also what has been weaponized, people think that anti-racism is synonymous with anti-white. Not at all. If the goal is for everybody to be free. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a lot of people making it about them when it's not. Yeah. And again, that's what race has taught us to do, right? It's to Mm -hmm. center, like if you're white, it's taught that you are the center. And then so when someone is saying, no, let's be holistic here. (laughs) Yeah. I have compassion for that for people, but I don't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) So what does racial healing look like for you? Well, we define it in our agency as healing from the damage, the Mm -hmm. damage caused by subjugation to the construct of racism. You can heal personally, physically, socially, systemically, and economically. We know that the work needs to be done economically, but I feel like personally is where people, individuals need to focus healing. Because if you can heal within, then 
we can more quickly heal our society. It's not about like healing something that has been torn, disrupted between Black people and white people. No, that's not what racial healing is. All of us who have been subject to this system, this way of thinking about humans, we all need to recover from that. We need to be restored and renewed from this ideology that is driving us to like, yeah, these binaries of Black and white or us against them. If we love them, then we miss out on something. That takes a lot of work internally because it's healing a mindset perspective. It's changing your lens and how you see yourself and how you see yourself situated in the world. It's about how you see fairness, you know? Okay. Yeah. In a racialized world, there is no fairness. Absolutely. There's only injustice. So to kind of wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? What would you say to someone struggling with this? Yes, if you are struggling with this, I want to encourage you to find a place or group or some network where you can get an education. Because I'm telling you, an education will give you well, first of all, liberate you from the oppressive binary or the oppressive like way of thinking about people and ourselves in terms of racial categories. But it will also help you see truths that lead to liberty. Like you can see systems beyond just seeing people. You see people within the system. So education will equip you and build you and build your capacity so that race and the conversation, the dialogue, the topic is not intimidating. It doesn't have to be intimidating or scary or taboo. If you get an education, you'll have more confidence. And in your confidence, you can begin to create a better world. I love that. And Mm -hmm. I love the phrase knowledge is power because Mm -hmm. absolutely getting an education Mm -hmm. is empowering. Yes, it is. Agreed. So if people want to reach out, connect with you, work with you, where can they find you? I do a lot of work through Brownicity. That's brownicity.com. And you can go there. And I would encourage people to become a member so that you have access to our courses and talks and workshops and our supportive community. Something so great about being in a space where everybody's kind of on the same page and going in the same direction. No, there's no such thing as like, well, I didn't know this or this is a dumb question. Nope, come on in and learn. You can also follow Brownicity on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter where we post other learning content. And then if you want to follow me, I mean, I mostly post about my family, but that's Lucretia Berry on Instagram. (laughs) Awesome. I'll have all of those in the show notes below. I believe I saw on your Instagram, it's only $10 a month to join with Brownicity, right? That's it. Yeah, $10 a month or $110 a year. You have access to everything that we put in there. So I encourage all the listeners to go check that out. Become a member. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. So I usually close my episodes with a little recommendation, a song recommendation, because I think music is super powerful. Mm -hmm. So do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? Well, there's so many, but I chose this one called Kingdom Come by Sanchez Fair. And the song is a lament for creativity and restoration and redemption and hope. It like flows from a base of hope, even in the midst of so much brokenness. It just lifts me. I love that. And everyone should go listen to that as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here and for sharing your wisdom with us. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for amplifying my voice and sharing Brownicity with your listeners. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.
I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.